Well, if you brought a Bible, you can open it to the book of John. We'll be in John chapter 8. And if you've been with us for any amount of time this fall, we've been traveling through a series that primarily have dealt with the I am statements um, of Jesus. And in the Gospel of John, uh, which is the only place we get these statements, Jesus says something about who he is. And so we've looked at those seven, and uh, we have an extra Sunday before we start Advent, so we've got to figure out something to do to conclude the series. That's sort of a joke. Um, this is really, a, 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 we, we looked at this several weeks ago when we looked at the I am statement where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And um, it's, really a, it, it's really a statement that we're going to see, that we see here in verse 56, 57, uh, 58 there. We probably should have began this series on. It, it's... It's a statement that is so profound that it in some ways houses everything that he has said because what he is doing is, is connecting himself to the great I am, to the God of history, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if we're kind of taking anything away from this series, I, I, I'm going to pull something out of this text that I, that I think would be the kernel of that, which is the gospel of Jesus, what he is saying to us, what he has said to us in all of these statements is that he really has come here to set us free. And we'll read that, we'll hear that again in, in this text that we read here. But that, that is really his message. John's point in his whole gospel is that you would believe. That's, that's the theme of his gospel. And what you would believe is that Jesus really is the Son of God who has come here to set sinners free from their sins. So let's look at this one last time as we conclude this series um, and look at this uh, profound statement that Jesus gives uh, about himself as we um, open God's Word together this morning. So let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word as found in the book of John, uh, chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. That is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, you, or we, were, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? 
it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Verse 48, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? And Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. In verse 57, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. It's the word of the Lord. Let me ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your uh, word to us in the book of John. We pray now that you would teach us, that you would give us your spirit and help us uh, to make these complex things simple, that we would understand them. There's a lot going on here, (laughs) and we need your help to understand what these things are. So we pray that you'd be with us, that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we would see things and hear things. Otherwise, we could not. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is in a name? Do you think much of your name? Do you think about where your name came from? How you got your name? Maybe some of us have family names, so there's some connection there. Your parents gave you a name that was in the family, and maybe you're a second, third, or fourth, who knows? Uh, Maybe some of you didn't like your name, so you decided to change it. I'm just going to start afresh, start anew. Um, what is in a name? In a blog post on being about the topics of names, Halima Shea writes this, our names may be reflections of sounds that appeal to an ear or living memories of a loved one that has passed. Some of us grow into our names, she says, and some of us decide that they are just uh, not a good fit, and so we change them. Well, I'm not sure I've thought that much about my name, to be honest, uh, and what it means, and Um, how I understand myself. I know that my middle name uh, came from my dad's fraternity brother uh, because we had the same birth dates. So that's why I was named Douglas, Ryan Douglas Moore. 
But most historians and sociologists will tell you that names in the past are what we refer to as antiquity, right? They are names uh, that, that, that gave meaning and, and understanding to who you were, not because of what you, had di- what you did or what had done, but because of what somebody else did. That it was who you belonged to, which is what gave you the status that you had. Today, I might say my name is Ryan Moore. I went to the University of Tennessee. I'm a pastor. Um, I used to work with such and such or for such and such, and I used to live here, but now I live in Maryland. In antiquity, though, you might say it this way. My name is Ryan Moore, son of Bill and Mary Beth Moore, grandson to William Moore, World War II veteran of this age, great-grandson to so-and-so, great-great-grandson, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, my appeal is not to me and the things that I have done in my life. My appeal is what? To somebody else and what they have done. That what I am known for, what matters, what my status is, is connected to somebody else. It's very different than the way we think about names today because names today are so much about us and how we want to identify our own personal stories and what they mean. And the reason I start here is because as we look at this text, it's really important for us to understand that, that, that the way people thought about names in the Bible is like antiquity. That it was, it was who you attached yourselves to and what they did and the, and, and the stories that they had and how that made you who you were. That was what, who you belonged to. And this is what's true for those in this text this morning who you were was determined by who you belonged to. And if you were Jewish, there was a name that, 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 that above all names that said this, and it was the name of Abraham. That to be Jewish meant to be what? A descendant of Abraham. That was the name that had power. But what many of the Jews missed in, 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 in not just Jesus' day, but but really throughout the Old Testament as we read, was that there is no power in the name of Abraham, but only, only in the name that that it pointed to. There was no power in Abraham himself, but in what his name pointed to. In other words, in the promise that Abraham pointed to and represented it, which, which was one to come and to redeem the world from their sin, to truly set his people free. And in our text this morning, Jesus says that this is me, the I am. Before Abraham was, I am. It is my name that is the only name that has the power to set you free and not Abraham. And so this is where we're going to start this morning as we look at and conclude this series of the I am statements and what it means and how Jesus has truly come to set us free and that it is his name that we belong to that is the name that has the power to truly do that. And so to look at this, uh, we're going to take this in three points. The only name that has the power to set us free, we're going to look at what it is that the I am actually means. We haven't done that yet. We're going to look at how then we are set free and why we are set free. Okay, so let's look at those three things the only name that has the power to be set free, or what the I am is. And then second, how we are set free. And lastly, why. Why? So that first one, 
this account starts out with Jesus, as we just read, talking to fellow Jews who think that they are okay. And what's interesting about this is that they have believed, according to the text, they believe in what Jesus has said, that he is the light of the world. And so he begins to have this long, drawn-out dialogue, and it's clear as we read through that they are not connecting the dots here. As a matter of fact, by the end of it, they pick up stones to kill him. But they believe that they are okay uh, in the sense of judgment, in the sense of what it means to be, um, you know, to have freedom um, as a Jewish person because they are, quote, offspring of Abraham. Looking back there at verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. In other words, these Jews, they think that they are free because of this name of Abraham to which they are offspring, right? We are, as it says, um, Sir, we have never been enslaved to anyone, which is not really true. (laughs) Um, They have. And what Jesus, though, is talking about, and we've noticed this throughout John, is that he says something to them that has sort of this physical implication, but he's really got a spiritual uh, understanding attached to it, right? right, You've got to be born again. And what does Nicodemus say? How can somebody re-enter their mother's womb, (laughs) right? Goes right over the top of their head. This is the same thing. We've never been enslaved to anybody. And Jesus is not talking, right, about a physical slavery here. He's talking about a spiritual slavery, a slavery that must be redeemed by the power of another. A slavery that must be redeemed by somebody else that has the power to actually fix the spiritual sin, the spiritual slavery that you have. And Jesus says that he is the one that can do this, not Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am. We first hear this name, though, the I Am, in Exodus 3 that we even read this morning where Moses is tending, right, his father-in-law's sheep. And this is the story of the burning bush. And you've, you've been in church at all, you might have heard this story. Jesus is, or Moses is out tending sheep, and God appears to him uh, in, in, a, in, a, in a bush that is set aflame but never is consumed. And he draws Moses in, and he tells Moses that he wants him to go to Egypt, and he wants him to go tell Israel and tell the Pharaoh to let my people go. I'm finally coming to redeem my people. And so Moses says what any of us would say at this point, uh, once we realize that we're actually hearing words from a bush that's on fire, is, well, if I come to the people of Israel and I tell them that the God of your fathers has sent me and they ask, what is his name? What should I tell them? Great question. And I've always thought, like, what would Moses, what, what did Moses hear when, 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 when God said this? Say this to the people, I am who I am. What kind of name is that? Like, give me, give me Steve or, you know, Bill. Like, give me something. Like, go to these people who are already, who, who are already just in a bad spot. And just say, hey, it's okay. I am has sent me. <laughs> I, you know, and that, again, that's some of the cultural difference here. But I, I think it's good for us to enter into this. Because what God is doing here is, is, is just is, is other. Right? And so God tells him, like, this is who, who it is. And if that doesn't work, attach it to who this name, what this name really means. It's, like, it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so first, what is this name, right? This name is connected to the self-giving name of God himself, which is Yahweh. 
And this name literally means, and I, we haven't talked about this this entire series, I'm realizing, but that's okay. It really means I will, be, I will be what I will be, or I am now who I will be forever. That's what the I am means. And so when Jesus takes this name on in John 8, right, he is not simply saying that he aligns with this God or he believes in this God. He is saying that he is this God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Jesus is saying that I am the fullness of God as he has been revealed in the scriptures, the one who sends manna from the sky, who is what? The bread of life. The one who is the great shepherd of the sheep, as we heard in this series already. As the fullness of God, this name implies eternal being. It says, I have always existed long before Abraham, and I will continue to exist long after this world ends. In the book of Revelation, we hear it said this way, that John says that I am, that, that God is the, the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty That's the I am that Jesus is connecting himself to. But it's not just a name that refers to the eternal nature of God, right? It's a name that implies presence, which also houses all of these statements. It implies closeness or nearness. As Michael Williams puts it, it is God saying, I will be to you as I was to them. referring to the fathers of old, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's being told as a child by your parent when when maybe you're too scared to go to bed in your own room because you've watched maybe a movie you've been told not to watch, but you watched it anyways. And and you you can't can't sleep in your room. You've got to go sleep with your parents. You've got to be with them. It's being told by your parents, you're fine. (laughs) I'm right here. No one's going to get you, Right? Mom and Daddy are with you now as we've been with you your entire life. That's what that name means. This is what he's saying. It means the God of the Bible is a God of action. He's a God of action who promises to be there. And not just be there, but to rescue, to redeem, to free you. God uses this name primarily throughout the Old Testament when he makes what? A covenantal promise with his people. Thank you. Again, this is not the God who is too busy uh, and too important to deal with the affairs of human beings. He's not the God who sort of winds up the clock, right, that is this world and sort of lets it go and sits back and does whatever, you know, he wants to do. This is the God who moves in. We're about to celebrate the incarnation at Christmas. That's what this is. The God who draws near, who moves in and acts on behalf of his own people. I am who I am. That's what that name means. When God gives this name to Moses, God is about to act on behalf of his people who were slaves to the Egyptians. He is sending Moses as his representative to go to Pharaoh and to let his people go. And just as God acted then to deliver his people out of the hands of the Egyptians through Moses, God is about to act again in the Gospel of John here 
in chapter 8. He is about to deliver his people through his son, Jesus. Not as slaves at the hands of the Egyptians, though, but as slaves to their own sin. It is not a physical exodus that we read about with Moses. It is a spiritual exodus that will be delivered at the cross. And by his resurrection... And what Jesus is saying then to these Jews is unless, unless you hide yourself in me, in my name, you will never be free. Abraham cannot help you. There is a different slavery that you need rescue from in order to be made free. Jesus is saying my name is the only name that has the power to truly do this. Beasley Murray writes this, There is a slavery from which Abraham's descendants are not exempt and which Abraham's Abraham's merits cannot affect. Bondage to sin is a reality for everyone who sins, including Abraham's children. What Jesus wants for those he's talking to in this text is for them to stop building their lives around a name around an identity that they think makes them free but has no power to free them in and of itself. And he's saying the same thing to us this morning. Because what all of us, all of us this morning, tie ourselves to a name, right? And it could be like your, your familial name, right? Or it could be the name you make for yourself, whatever that is, that this is the way that life is going to work out for me. This is the way that, 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 that things are, are, are going to fall into place that, that, that I will be truly free, my own person even. Some of us inherit that name or some of us make it ourselves, but none of it is life-giving. And what, when it's compared to what Christ is offering, Jesus is saying, my name is the only name that has the power to truly set you free. It is what gives you life. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection. I am the true vine. What's in a name? What's in a name? Everything. Everything. Before Abraham was, I am. This is the first point. Jesus is the only name that has the power to set us free. This is why he attaches himself to that name. This is why he refers to himself as this name. This is why he uses that name. This is where this comes from. Let's get on to the second point, though. How then are we set free? And we are set free by faith alone. And this is what gets to Abraham, right? That that we receive the gift of Jesus on our behalf by faith. Something that Abraham also did, but something that we do as well. Perhaps the most interesting claim in here, apart from before Abraham was, I am, is the statement just before it in verse 56, if you look at it, where Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Well, who is Abraham, and why did he rejoice? If you haven't grown up around the church, or maybe you have and you forgot this story, let me summarize Abraham as briefly as I can. When Abraham comes to us in the book of Genesis chapter 12, and Abraham at this point, before God calls him, is just this you know, wandering pagan, worshiping many gods in Mesopotamia. And God calls him, 
And he says, I, I want you to come to this place, which is really out in the middle of nowhere in the desert. I want you to bring your family, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I, I believe that God probably had to get Abraham's attention more than once. <laughs> um, and I just imagine like, what it was like for him to go and tell this story to Sarah and say, no, no, we're, we're going to pick up our stuff, and we're going to head out here to the desert. <laughs> but this is what he does. And it's a remarkable act of faith, of, of, of hearing God's word. And this is, I don't, I don't, this is who this is. And so Abraham, Abraham does. And he goes out there and he, and he, and he, and he makes, or has this covenant with God. God makes this covenant with him. And in this covenant, God promises that he will be the blessing to many. That through him, he is going to make his name great. And in Genesis 15, verse 6, it says that Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. In other words, God hadn't done this yet. He just told Abraham he was going to do it. He hasn't done this yet. He just promised that he would, and Abraham believed him, he had, and, and, and he had faith in that promise, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And what is righteousness, real quick? The big, clunky word. Righteousness... It's just another word for right standing, you might say, or debts paid. When, 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 we, when the Bible deals with slavery as it does often, as you read even in this text, a slave in that day and age was made righteous or had a right standing if and when someone came along and paid their debt and freed them from whomever they owed money or service to. It was a transactional uh, agreement. And what the Bible is saying about Abraham, as it says about all of us, when it uses the language of slavery, right, is that we have this debt. And it's not a, it's not a physical debt, right? It's, it's, it's a spiritual debt. It's the debt of sin, of transgressions against a, a holy and just God. And we have this debt that is sin that what must be paid for. And this is called the justice of God, right? This is why I can't let it go. But God promises to Abraham all the way back here in Genesis chapter 12, I am going to make it right. And he believed him. And the faith was credited to him, the text says, as righteousness, as debts paid. And the way God promises to make it right to Abraham is what? Through his descendants and offspring. And so now, as we move in the story, Abraham and Sarah are just waiting for a baby. And if you know the story, the baby doesn't come right away. Matter of fact, 25, 30 years later, when Abraham is 90 and Sarah 100, is when God finds it to be the appropriate time to open Sarah's womb and, and, and may have her be pregnant. And they bring this news to them, and what's their reaction? They laugh. I don't know if that's my reaction. There's probably some tears there. But they laugh, and this is what they also name their son. Laughter, which is what Isaac means, to remember what God's promises to them. And in Isaac was the physical representation at this point that God would actually keep his promise to Abraham and Sarah. It's a wonderful moment. Now, was Isaac going to be the promised blessing? Was, was he going to be the one that redeemed everything? We don't, we don't know that yet. There's a lot that hasn't been revealed to them. But God is, is showing, uh, you know, being good to his promises by giving us a son. But then things get really strange. Here's this wonderful high water mark in the book of Genesis, right? Chapter 22, they've had this son. God has come through. And what does God tell Abraham? I want you to, I want you to offer your son to me as a burnt offering. 
I don't know if you've wrestled with that scene throughout your life, if you've been in the church, but this scene, it always troubled me. What in the world is this about? Why would you promise this to somebody, give it to them, and then go tell them, I want you to offer this person as a burnt offering to me? And of course, if you study this and you look at it, you realize that that this is specific to Abraham, right? And that God is doing something here that is going to set the stage for what we experience today in Jesus Christ. And as we look at this text, if you will, just listen to me, listen to this and don't look at it. This is back in Genesis when, when God tells him to take Isaac and to go sacrifice. Listen to these words. They're going to the mountain, Abraham and his son Isaac. And here's what, Abraham, here's what Isaac says. Here's what the son says. Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So Abraham, in faith, obeys God. He binds Isaac up and he places him on the altar. He goes all the way. And as he's about to sacrifice Isaac, the text says that the angel of the Lord says, Stop. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Again, note, it's important to know that God is testing Abraham here. It's said throughout the entire book. And this is a unique story to Abraham that God is telling you, right, um, And he's doing it so that what he's not telling you to demonstrate your faith by what? (laughs) Taking your child and placing him or her on the altar. Let's just make that clear this morning. This is about Abraham here. But as the angel of the Lord tells Abraham to stop, the text says that Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. So Abraham took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering. Instead of a son. And he called the place the Lord will provide. God says to Abraham, by myself I have sworn because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And in your offspring shall all the nations be Bless. What's the point? When Abraham saw that ram in the thicket, y'all, right? He saw in some veiled sense how God would act to fulfill his promise, that God would provide another way, a redeemer, someone to pay the debt of his sin and all of the sin of the world. And he rejoiced, which is incredibly appropriate. (laughs) He rejoiced. In other words, Abraham put his faith in the promise, and when he did that, he received the righteousness that the promise would provide, a righteousness that comes through faith, through receiving this gift. So when Jesus says, let's come back to John, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. He is saying in John that today is that day. Today is that day. I am the one 
God has promised. I am the ram in the thicket, as it were, and by faith in me, by receiving this gift, the gift of God on your behalf, you are set free. But the cost of this freedom will not come at the expense of Isaac Abraham. It'll come at the expense of another son. It is a gift, though, that only can be received. There's a couple that we were acquaintances with when we were in seminary, and we didn't know them that well, but another couple that we were friends with knew them really well, and I heard this story through them. So that's, you know, some details missed. You can... I don't know who you can blame, Um, but this is how the story goes, that one afternoon, um, the husband of this other couple, that we know that well, they get this call, and they find out in this call that an aunt that he never knew who had passed away, that was on his mom's side of the family, and his mom had passed away, that she had died, and again, they didn't know who she was, but they're on this phone call, and it's, it's... There's an attorney on the other end saying, hey, she's died, and and you are the only living heir at this point for her estate. I don't know if you know anything about being in seminary, but most people in seminary don't have like two nickels to rub together. It's just sort of a thing, something God does for us. He provides in other ways. Um, And so they're hearing this. They're hearing about this aunt that they knew nothing about. They're hearing about how all of a sudden, you know, in, in this will that she has, that, that somehow that she is the, that he is the only living heir, and this attorney is now saying, like, you are now beholder of this estate, and what's this estate? And it, 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 was, a, it was a pretty good, pretty good number, a seven-figure number. We'll just leave it at that. And they're trying to take this in, as any of us would be. Both of them worked while they went to seminary. There were even real questions uh, about whether they could stay in seminary because of the loans, all that stuff. But with one phone call, all that changed for them. On the phone with the attorney, according to my friend, the husband asked, well, what do we need to do? And the attorney said, nothing, right? Which bank account do you want me to send this to? And this is all he's interested in. He's trying to wrap this case up. Which bank account do you want to send this to, right? This, This, friends, is the transaction of the gospel. The transaction of the gospel comes in the same way. It is a gift of Jesus that comes to us that you have got to receive. And what this text is saying, what, what, God is, what Jesus is doing with Abraham, he's saying the same thing happened with him. He saw that ram as it were, right? He saw the gift that God would offer to, to redeem him, and he just received it by faith. And it was credited to him as righteousness. And this is what you must do as well. What the Jews are missing then that Jesus is talking to is that they think there is actually power in the name of Abraham himself and being his descendants. And what Jesus has been telling them is that the power is in who that name pointed to. And it pointed to me. I am. And it is grace and you have to receive this. Do we see that this morning? As, as, the, as the scriptures interrupt the names that we're making for ourselves, right, the names that we're hiding under, the names that we're building ourselves up on, whatever that is for you this morning, that one, that name has no power, that there's only one name that has power for you this morning, but even at that, it is a name that you must receive, that you don't do anything for. It is a gift, 
And by faith, you are set free from the condemnation and the bondage of your sin, according to the text. This is how you're free. By grace, by having faith. This is what Abraham knew. This is what he rejoiced in, friends. Right? I'm asked all the time, like, what did people in the Old Testament do in order for salvation? Right? Did they just go to hell? No. They believed in the same thing you believed in. Right? They believed in, in what was to come, in Jesus Christ, right? in God's Redeemer. We look back and believe in that work. It's the same thing, though. Abraham knew this. He saw this and he rejoiced. This is what made him righteous. This is what made him free. It is that free gift that God gives his people and it's only received by faith. And the same is true for us this morning. This is how we are set free. Lastly, why are we set free? And this is where we'll end it. We're set free only because of the work of another on our behalf. And if I can go back to the beginning when we talked about names, right? We talked about how names in antiquity worked, how, how you, uh, your status, right, who you were was attached to what somebody else did. Well, Christian, that is your story this morning. And why you are set free has nothing to do with what you have done or haven't done. Thank the Lord. It is only because of what somebody else has done, the work of another, and that is the work of Jesus Christ. This is why we must receive this gift. It is something that we cannot do for ourselves. If we look back at verse 35, Jesus gives this strange parable that we read as he's talking about the truth and how the truth will set you free. And after telling them this, he says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And, and just look, I don't know if you're like me. I wish Jesus would be clearer sometimes when he's not. Sometimes I read through these stories, and maybe you're like me. Man, what is going on here? What are you saying? <laughs> and, and this is actually a good example when we read all of this, because what happens at the end? Right? They pick up stones to kill him. And he knows this. Right? He could answer this question immediately. And if you go back and read it this afternoon, right, notice like there, he, he, he moves around their questions because he, he doesn't have much time. And I think that's fascinating, right? He knows what they will do. And it's really a mercy. It's really a mercy. I'm going to give you as much as I can, as much as you can take. That's what he does. But he gives this parable and he talks about the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. What is he saying? He's saying the power to be set free is only found in the son because only the son has the ability to offer the slave a permanent place in the house. Some of that's because the son will outlive the father in that day and age, right? right? Father of the house who runs everything, just stick with the parable. He's going to die. The son's going to take over. I'm the only one who has the ability to, to change your status, right? To, to offer you a permanent place in the house forever. A person who was a slave, as we can imagine, had no power to make themselves a part of that family, of that household. But spiritually, as slaves to our sin, we have no power, no standing to free ourselves from that debt. That's how the parallel works. That's why we are all slaves, as the text says, because sin has entered all of our hearts and we have all acted out of that. But the Son can change that status. 
the son can actually appeal to the father if he needs to, right? Or in this case, the son will outlive the father, but that's not the connection that Jesus is making to his father. He's saying that he has the ability to present you in a different way so as to allow the father to let you be in the house forever. And where does that happen? That happens at the cross. That's the work, friends. It's the work of his death and his resurrection that makes you right all of a sudden and says that now you're no longer slaves in this house. You are what? You are sons and daughters of this kingdom. Paul will talk about it as adoption when he gets to the book of Galatians and say that now you have been brought near. But why? Because of him. Because of the work of the son and your name. This is why this is the only name uh, that, that, that has the power to set you free, but is the name in which you will be known. And that's the good news this morning. That's, Jesus is the name that you will be known, the name that has power to redeem you. Right? We all belong. We all tie ourselves to a name. The question is, does it have the power to truly set us free, to bring us into the house, as it were? This past Christmas, Ada uh, got us a scuba lessons. Let that sink in for a second. I wasn't asking for scuba lessons. Um, it's one of those, let's just see what happens. And the next thing I knew, I had a tank strapped to me and I was in a pool um, trying to figure out why I said yes to this. But uh, this was a really, really unique experience. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this. I know I've talked to a couple of you guys that have done this. Um, some people, this is not their thing. But as we were preparing to do this, right, we had all this uh, certification we had to get done, all these lessons, and you learn, first of all, about your equipment, because, you know, you're going into water, and, you know, the thing about water is that this is not an environment where you were designed to thrive. And so you've got these, this vest, right, they call it the BCD vest, it's just this life vest that inflates and deflates and all this stuff, you've got your regulator, your mouthpiece, um, uh, which is the most important part of the equipment, uh, you got your tank, your air, you got your fins, your mask, and you've got this dive gauge. And, and this dive gauge really becomes the most important thing once you're in the water. And the dive gauge is this thing that tells you how much air you've got left. <laughs> and it also tells you your depth, which is also an important part of scuba. And um, there's just a lot of math going on here. But we, we, for our certification, there are all these drills that you have to do. And you know, you've got to go down and you've got to take your mask off. And I don't know if that sounds fun to you at 60 feet of water. So let's just take our mask off and see what happens. That's part of the certification too. And, and then you've know, you got to learn what to do when that happens, right? Uh, we learned how to use a compass underwater. And so while you're trying not to freak out, the fact that you're underneath the surface of the water this much, this guy wants you to use a compass and do some math problems in order to navigate uh, is it, you know, if you were going to be in murky water, which I don't plan to be. But... There was that. There was all kinds of other things. But the best part, you know, about any of the certification, and we, we, we got to be certified, and that was great, is that the five to eight minutes at the end of each class that the, the, direct, the, the Scooby guy would just let you, you know, just let you explore. Because this is why you do this, right? This is what you put the time in for, the money, all, whatever it is. That, you, know, the, you want the ability just to explore the bottom of that sea, to go and just sort of hover above a piece of coral and just notice, like, just the... the the life that is brimming all over that thing, unless you wouldn't notice, unless you just went by, right? 
One of the coolest things that we saw there while we went was a manatee the size of a car. And I'd only seen one of these in an aquarium. And this thing was sleeping on the bottom of the floor. And I went with the dive, and we just went down, and we laid, around, right, laid down right next to it. Just started looking at it, right? Here's this manatee. It's really cool. Again, you're finally exploring. You're not worried about what it, what it took to get you here. You're not worried about the time and the money. You're not worried about how deep you are. You're not really even thinking about that. You're just enjoying the view, remembering one thing over and over. Check that depth gauge. Check that air gauge. Because it really is the most important piece of equipment under that water. As you look at it, it tells you exactly what's in your tank, which means it tells you exactly how much life you have left. It is what frees you to go move and enjoy what it is that you've come here to enjoy. As we finished up the certification, I remember uh, something that our dive instructor said in this class that really made more sense to me after all this. And he said to us as we were you know, sitting in the pool doing our first lesson, what's the most important piece of equipment once you're under the water, right? Assuming your regulator works. If your regulator doesn't work, you're not going in the water anyways. And of course, everyone thinks it's the tanks, like it's the air, right? And he says, no, it's not the air, it's that depth gauge, that depth gauge. He said, the depth and air gauge, right? The tank is what keeps you alive. There's no doubt about that. The depth gauge tells you for how long. And he thought this was funny, you know. And he would tell stories where people would just forget about their depth gauge and it would just, they would just run out of air and then have to have emergency ascent. The depth gauge is what tells you how long, and it was very true. And, and as we began to think about this, right, without that gauge, you don't know where you are. You don't know how much time you have. You don't know, what's, what, you know when you're supposed to start making your ascent, which is a whole other issue with scuba diving, right? Without that gauge, not to press this a little you know, too far, but I will, you really are a slave to the limits of that tank and what it puts on you and the limits of the environment and what that puts on you. That gauge is what allows you, what, the freedom to enjoy the dive wherever you are. In other words, the air gives you life, yes, but the gauge sets you free. Friends, the gospel is news that says everyone is alive, but not everyone is set free. And that's John's appeal to you. As you see Jesus, as you see who he is, who he's, who he's revealed himself to be, He's, he, he's here to give you life. He's here to set you free, right, from all, all the, whatever the worries are that you have, but more importantly, the bigger issue of the bondage of your sin that you now have. It is his name and his name only, right, that connects you to that freedom, that gives you that seat in that house, and he is glad to go to the cross to make that a reality. And he invites you this morning to be connected to him in that way. What name are you connected to this morning? What name are you building your life around? What name are, are you looking for all the things in this world to start making sense, right? What, what, what is giving you meaning? What is really setting you free? Let me offer you the only name that has the power to do this, the name of Jesus. Let me pray for us this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. And John, we thank you for Jesus, the great I am. We pray that you would use your words 
to remind us over and over of your commitment to us, your love for us, what you have come to actually do. That we wouldn't overcomplicate things this morning, that we would see that we really need freedom from the bondage of our sin. Some of us in this room, we don't even know what that is. Would you reveal that to us? Would you see how that has cut you? How that has hurt you? How that is a transgression against you and what you, who you are and really what you want for us? Would you break us of those things? Would you draw us closer into relationship with you as we recognize what it is that you have come to do for each and every one of us And that is by faith in Jesus, you've come to set us free in him. Would that be the name that we are connected to this morning? The name that we trust, that gives us life, that gives it to us abundantly. And would you do all of this for your church, for your kingdom, for your own glory? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.